Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, December the 6th, 2022. Uh, regular viewers and listeners of the show know We've done a lot of thinking, had a lot of conversations about the politics and culture of food and the food industry, the industrial food industry in particular. Uh, a couple of months ago, we had the great English journalist, the winner of the Orwell Prize for 2022, George Monbiat, on the show, talking about his new book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, a very important book, very important thinker. It's not just Mombia, though. We did a show last month with Richard McCarthy, uh, one of the pioneers of, um, of, of uh, farm-to-table uh, uh, um, culture and markets in the United States. He has a new book out called Kuni, a Japanese vision and practice for urban-rural reconnection, talking about how the Japanese... And Japanese practices can help educate Americans about bridging the gulf between uh, the countryside and the city. Uh, we talked uh, on Thanksgiving about the weird um, dissymmetry, I guess, of American culture in which um, uh, in, uh, we, we celebrate uh, abundance by overeating. Uh, and of course, technology is really important. Jenny Kleeman was on the show uh, this summer talking about high tech and food. Uh, her new book, Sex Robots and Vegan Meat, is very intriguing. All this is coming together in our conversation today with my guest, Chloe Sovino. She has a new book out, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. In many ways, it's a book about the um, catastrophic environmental and health consequences of big meat. Chloe is joining us from her home in the lower on on the lower east side, uh, Manhattan, New York. Uh, the book is just out. Congratulations, Chloe. Uh, is this your first book? Yes, thank you. Today's the big pub day. It's my first book, and I'm so excited to share it with the world. Well, you deserve it. It's required a lot of work. Um, how do you think of this book, Raw Deal? Is it a, an expose of, of big meat? Is it an environmental polemic? Is it a health polemic? Or does it center on the whole issue of, of how and why we eat in the 21st century? Well, it's been called all those things and more. And, you know, it stems from my near decade of reporting at Forbes. I started out covering the billionaire's beat and get doing the valuations you see on these lists for hedge funders, real estate folks, and not just food, but also a lot of food people. And I really realized that there was just so much wealth and power hoarded in the meat industry. And Aside from that, you know, then I spent years and years visiting their plants and being one of the only journals really who some of these folks speak to. But then it all came to this real catalyzing point in 2020 when I was hearing from these meatpacker billionaires who don't talk to many other folks and 
hearing about them saying when it's raining gold outside, I'm running around with buckets and just talking about the profits and almost licking their chops in a way. But at the same time, I was also talking to workers that didn't have any chicken in their freezers when they were working on the lines in these plants and being put directly in harm's way for the benefit of these meatpackers, the profits and exports all at the same time when these UN reports and other really catastrophic studies were coming out around climate and no one seemed to really be talking to each other or connecting how all of these things really intersect in such devastating ways for shoppers, for communities around production, for these workers and pretty much everyone along the supply chain. Let's talk about the environmental consequences. When I talked to George Monbiat, he argued, and I know this is controversial, that big farming and particularly big meat is the core reason why we live on a planet of global warming and that the, 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 the crisis of carbon is a crisis of big meat. Do you share Monbiat's position? I mean, if we could address this, let's just say we could get rid of big meat or we all became vegetarians or vegans. Would we essentially solve the environmental crisis of, of global warming in one fell swoop? I mean, there's been irreversible damage that industrial meat has inflicted that we'll never be able to get over. I think that can't be understated. And it really needs to change meat consumption on the whole needs to go down. Global demand, the billionaires talking to me about how much they're so excited about their global demand continuing to decrease like that needs to fundamentally redirect in the financial institutions underpinning those loans and those projections also need to come to a better understanding of what really needs to happen to decarbonize because there really just isn't anyone in industry or in these financial institutions that have been acknowledging how much really needs to change and that can be a bit of a devastating thing to realize there's a lot of pilot tests happening out there, impacting very, very, very small percentages. Chloe, you're, you're dancing around the question. I asked you a very simple question. Is, is big meat the cause of our environmental crisis? Yes or no? It's definitely one of the driving factors. I mean, you can't talk about that with also talking about- A driving gas. factor or the driving factor, because there are many driving factors. You know, talking about driving, we could include cars. We can talk about uh, other forms of consumption is meat the, the the central issue in 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 the environmental crisis of today. A third of all global emissions come from the food system, and meat's the biggest value, biggest driver of those emissions. It can't continue on the path that it's been on. Well, you've you've answered that. I appreciate it. I know I know these things are always more complicated than. Uh, people who run shows like mine want. Um, so you've mentioned these global billionaires, the big meat barons. Um, how much has changed since the beginning of the 20th century when you had equally wealthy, powerful, and often destructive meat barons? I mean, what, what's happened over the last 100 years in the big meat industry? Well, there were four or five you know, top players back then, and there were four players in most most meat categories today. So actual structures haven't changed. And that's one of the biggest problems. The players involved and the actual power that they've been able to eke out just in the past few years or past decade is new and hasn't 
been what's happened, you know, even the past five decades, most of these industries have been consolidated since, you know, the 1980s when there was merger mania and a bunch of M&A frenzy really driving huge amounts of roll-ups happening. But the, the, the meat industry though, it, it just really, there's recent power that's been different because the meat packers now have been able to accumulate profits for so long. And at the same time, then withstanding drought, withstanding other climate crises that have already been happening and have been impacting production already, like crops, not meeting expectations like drought, extreme heat, impacting how corn and soy that these livestock rely on are grown. And so there has been a lot of policies over the decades to try to balance out the power, but the imperfect balance is is there and it's been there for a century. We've done many shows on big tech and the role of big tech in Washington, D.C. and the, the way in which companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft control policy. Is the same true of big tech? Are they massive spenders on, on, on lobbying D.C.? And are there particular companies or individuals for, uh, who, who are in your, your hall of shame in Raw Deal? like that a hall of shame that's funny um yeah there's been decades of these billionaires and these top meat packers funding lobbying and working hand in hand with state local and federal governments to make regulations help them get bigger and help the smaller players get pushed out many have gone bankrupt many had them gone gone swallowed up during a lot of this MA frenzy from the bigger meat packers and a lot of these lobbyists have also been directly lobbying for regulations that would, you know, eat away at the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act and create more environmental desecration. There has been direct lobbying to remove some of the power from government in terms of regulating the environmental impact of these meat packers. And that's been from their pockets funded. There's been a lot of different examples in my book, but I focus a lot on JBS, the world's largest meat packer, which really came into the U.S. market just in the past decade. And they have a wild revolving door in their roster from, you know, their chief legal officer being a former FTC antitrust lawyer to the former chairman and SEC of the for Harvey Pitt is an advisor. We have uh, the former Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who is also an advisor, um, different USDA food safety folks who have been, you know, working for them for many years now and just so many others. And then, of course, you have the direct politicians. I mean, the meat industry, their organizations, but also these companies directly have been spending millions and millions of dollars on lobbyists and getting politics to bend to what they want. What have been the the key issues that they're bending politics to? One of the subtitles of your book is Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed. Um, uh, It's not that well known compared, say, to Section 230 when it comes to big tech or even some of the issues associated with with big pharma and and the armaments industry. Are there particular issues... Uh, Chloe, that the, the, the big meat industry, uh, that the, the, the big meat has got through Congress that you think have been disastrous? They're big on a lot of immigration reform. 
on the opposite side of reformed often. Um, but the Clean Water Act has been dismantled specifically because of this lobbying and the concerted effort from meatpacking industry organizations, trade groups, and the billionaires themselves. I also think you can't talk about this without also talking about what just happened in the pandemic alone. I mean, in the pandemic, you had these meatpackers working with state governments, with local governments, but also you had Tyson and Smithfield actually writing the policies that the federal mm. government was using. I have heard of Tyson. Tyson is one of the companies there. They're the chicken company who are mm -hmm. a particular uh, association. Is it with the Koch brothers and with the Republican Party? Do, uh, do they tend to be particularly strong within the Republican Party? And I'm guessing in uh, rural states. Yeah, so Tyson is based in Arkansas. Uh, it also has Walmart in it and has been known for right. politicians from Bill Clinton to many others. And their infamous CEO, Don Tyson, was very big in politics. And it was what drove a lot of their growth in the 80s and 90s without a lot of the antitrust scrutiny that they probably deserved. We, we did a show actually on uh, on Walmart uh, with Rick Wartsman. He, he just uh, written a book about them. And he talks about some of their accomplishments in raising the minimum wage. When it comes to the people working the lines in, 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 in the meat industry, um, how badly or well are they paid? It's pretty brutal. I mean, these workers, especially, you know, take example, an example I write about in the book, in the chicken industry, there's been two decades of a scheme in the chicken industry with executives from across the industry coming together to keep worker wages and benefits subjugated completely low because they wanted to save as much cost as possible and be able to hold on to as much profit as possible. And they saw the workers as one of the easiest ways to do that, one of the easiest costs on a spreadsheet to control. These are super dangerous jobs and there are long-term ramifications of working these jobs that people really don't even fully understand. But in many of the towns where these plants are, often there's one of a few opportunities for big jobs and these towns are often really gutted from the just the, the move out of the rural communities and there's crazy reports you can read around, you know, $25,000, $30,000 median incomes. And most of the chicken poultry workers are on food stamps or some other form of food assistance. Many are, you know, getting, you know, wor working with charities for food and clothes and other supplies on a daily basis. And it's a way that the meat packing industry keeps their workers hidden. Often these workers are refugees. Many of them speak many different languages and are from many different marginalized groups and very hard when those vulnerable folks are falling through the cracks. Yeah, it sounds as if um, Big Meat brings together all the worst aspects of 21st century American capitalism. How much um, primary reporting did you do for the book? Did you get out? Did you go to these factories? Um, did you talk to some of the workers? And did you have an opportunity to talk to some of the executives in Big Meat, are some worse than others, or are they all, at least in your mind, as evil as, as the next one? Absolutely. No, I spoke with so many different folks, thousands of folks. I've been in more slaughterhouses than almost any other journalist in the food and farming world. So, you know, I've 
and that's even from before the pandemic. I spent years and years going to different slaughterhouses, visiting the hog manure lagoons of Smithfield. And I worked a slaughter for this book, even on a farm in 2020 myself. And so I'm, I'm intimately familiar with how a small scale slaughter can work, but also how industrial meat actually looks when there is killing and when livestock are being turned into meat. I've seen it all. I write in the book about how they were surprised when I was touring one of my first thief slaughterhouses that I was puking by a certain point. So they said, oh, great, you can come into the gut room then. And I went into the gut room and that the book takes you through all of that. It takes you through speaking with the executives and having lunch at big fancy midtown restaurants and talking about how they're so excited that global demand is increasing. And then it takes you to speaking with the workers and the unions and talking about how they're scared and they're being put on the line or how they're concerned that they don't have chicken in their freezers, but they're continuing to show up for work. I'm also speaking with a lot of scientists, a lot of nutritionists, a lot of finance experts, short sellers, everyone who's trying to get in and make a profit off of the future of food. Chloe, do you think if ordinary people watching, listening to this had to, were forced to spend half an hour in the slaughter room seeing hogs or chickens or, or cows slaughtered on a mass industrial scale that it would turn them off meat forever? I worried about that when I went to my first slaughterhouse, it was 96 degree heat in Omaha. And I said, what am I thinking? And I had planned to stake billionaire at a steakhouse with this, the billionaire owner of the slaughterhouse for right after. And I was very concerned I would never be able to eat meat again. Um, but I was able to, and I have always said, you know, if I go into my stop or operation or plant or farm and I see something that I'm not comfortable with and I never want to eat meat again, I will do that. I will say though, I mean, the slaughterhouses I've been to, almost all of them have been pretty gruesome. Even when you think they're clean, you're still, I, I still throw away all my boots, even if I'm wearing booties on top of my boots. Uh, it's, the smell is intense. The ammonia smell alone will make some people faint. And there's really nothing like the snap of intestines being rolled out by a machine in front of you. And then, of course, there's the, 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 the humanistic critique. We've done many shows um, on our relationship with other species. In fact, later today, I'm doing a show with Esther Wolfson. Uh, uh, between, uh, she's the author of Between Light and Storm, How We Live with Other Species, did a Fascinating show with Karen Backer recently on her new book on the sounds of life, how we're learning to talk to other species. Um, how do we come out of this? How do we come out of raw deal as a species, uh, Chloe? Pretty, pretty miserably, I'm guessing. I mean, it doesn't reflect well on us as a species, this, this mass industrial slaughter of, of animals for food, which often makes us actually unhealthy. What's your take on that? The, the humanistic critique. And I don't, maybe, maybe humanistic is the wrong word. Maybe a speciesist. I don't know what word we should use. Yes. No, I mean, I think the humanity aspect of this is really important. And there's also a lot of waste to talk about. I mean, even with those livestock, right? Think, talk about the pandemic again. There was so much waste because of these slaughterhouse backups that happened in the pandemic that there were thousands and thousands of livestock that ended up getting slaughtered or euthanized just on their farm and were never able to be used for meat. But they had to eat 
millions and millions of tons of industrial produced and chemically farmed soy and corn just to get to weight. And so there's no humanity there alone. There's no human that waste. And then there's also no humanity when you talk about how there's still so many access issues in the food system broader and meat has a deep access problem. There's 40 million Americans hungry alone, 13 million children. And meat continues to be one of the top products that is spent on from food aid assistance. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you're eating when you're starving, but what's accessible often at the cheaper price points, especially for meat products has potentially deadly health consequences and a, a lot of issues. And so there's all these questions swirling and really with where meat is going, it's hard to see a future that exists with, in the status quo. Well, the future is bleak uh, in your description of it, but it's not quite as bleak as perhaps some people might fear. Um, sure. You've also written some ways in which some powerful people are addressing lab-grown meat, for example. You had a piece in Forbes about a man called Mr. Beast investing some of his money in, um, in, in lab-grown meat chains. What do you think of vegan meat and, and this industry and movement? Will it produce the same billionaires, the same evil in the long term? Or is this one fix of simply replacing animal food with artificial food? I write a lot about the question of if alternative meat will be able to take a big bite out of industrial meat in the book because it has been brought up as such a challenger. But there really are fundamental questions with what's been currently on the marketplace. Because, you know, these are ultra processed products that are coming from the same systems and structures that big meat is supported by some of the same institutional investors, some of the same billionaire investors, and also the same types of corn and soy monocropped farming systems of commodities, which are the kind of the main ingredients in these products. And so there's health issues, but then there's also, especially when you talk about lab-grown meat or cultivated meat, which is the, what the industry wants you to call it, there's fundamental questions around who's going to own the ability to make what was once a natural product. You know, there's now a handful of billionaires who are owning the intellectual property. Yeah, uh, you keep on mentioning billionaires as if they're by definition evil. I'm no great fan of billionaires, but Billionaires are simply successful business people. I mean, that's just the nature of American capitalism. We can't get rid of them. I mean, that's not the core problem, is it, with our food industry, billionaires? No, but there's a lot of dumb money that I've talked about, especially that's been investing in the future of food and alternative proteins has gotten the most money. And a lot of it is for short-term profits, short-term gains, and that's not the answer to the future of food. We just don't have enough time and resources to waste. And so there are a lot of billionaire funds that I write about in the book, actually, that, you know, are making long-term strategic investments. Are they good? Are... Give me some examples of some good billionaires. Um... Turner, for example, I write about his bison and his daughter and how they've been transitioning their bison ranches across the countries that owns 50% of the bison market in the country. And he's transitioning from using, you know, less CAFO or less industrial practices and, and really creating more holistic grazing on mm. and huge ranches, some of the biggest farmland in the country. 
And what about companies like Impossible Burger? They've been dramatically hyped, but one's also read some quite critical pieces about them and their progress. Two questions about them. Are, are some of these companies different from big meat companies? And, and, and how are consumers actually embracing or choosing not to embrace uh, companies like Impossible Meat? Impossible is a great example of billions of dollars in hype and crazy expectations and pressures and how it's been one of the key drivers of the plant-based market really going bust extremely quickly, far quicker than a lot of folks really expected. And, you know, I wrote even in June for Forbes, a story called the lifeless market for meatless meat. And that was even really ahead of the curve. The market has completely tanked there's been massive layoffs at impossible and also its key competitor beyond the inspirational visionary founder who i quote in my book extensively has been you know forcibly removed essentially from investors and their folks who just really saw impossible as having all the money in the world but still not really able to get consumer adoption like they needed and what about the the, the retail side i mean i'm interested in fast food but also in uh big retail organizations like whole foods that of course is is still owned by amazon and are there good retailers when it comes to meat i'm a big fan of the berkeley bowl uh, my ex local store in berkeley california particularly good score uh, and i think quite responsible and cooperatively owned um, are there particular retailers who you admire, you think are addressing some of the issues you cover in your book? I read about Basic Smart Oregon, uh, Thrive Market, the online retailer nationwide available. I write a lot about how co-op grocers and CSAs and FUBs in general should be the model that consumers use to vote with their dollars because that dollar is far better felt by the producers than if you go to a grocery store. But yes, there are a lot of grocery stores that you know have been able to figure out a way that works in this system where there has been a decade of mass consolidation and grocery bankruptcies, a lot of M&A too, and a lot of downward pressure on the stores that are trying to support a healthy food system. Well, what about a company like Whole Foods? If you go there, their their food is very expensive. Uh, they do do they do sell meat, and they promise, uh, I think, a more responsible attitude. Should consumers trust a company like Whole Foods? I quote from Whole Foods' former meathead and several other former Whole, Whole Foods executives and managers and grocery employees in the actually because I think Whole Foods is one of the places where founders, investors, buyers, grocery industry folks alike all tell me that they've just seen this massive disappointment with how Amazon has come in. And, you know, there's been a changing of standards. There's several class actions happening now in terms of the meat sold, at, specifically in terms of how the meat is labeled antibiotic free, but some of this meat is in fact testing for antibiotics. And it's really kind of blown the box open on how Whole Foods doesn't do much validation of some of their so-called ethical sourcing, especially in the meat world. Uh, but that's just one example. And, you know, their investors walk the aisles of Whole Foods with often, you'll, you know, it's funny because you see things there that you just would have never seen a decade ago at Whole Foods. I mentioned earlier, I did a show with Richard McCarthy, one of the founders of the local um, farmers markets in the United States. He has a new book out, Cooney. What about local farmer markets? 
um, in the Berkeley and San Francisco ones that I go to, there's always a, a, a meat stand and that meat claims to be, again, humane, but it's much more expensive. Is this one fix? Is this one way that, uh, to, to borrow some language from you, uh, good meat can actually exist? My book addresses head on how farmer markets are and really can be rife with problems. And, you know, those types of markets have become really popular over the past decade as locavorism has become this ubiquitous term, but it's not really had any actual impact. And it's been this almost distraction that's then let big meat continue to grow and continue to amass more power. Farmers markets have been, unfortunately for the producers, you know, incentivizing unsustainable long-term solutions. Many, very few of the producers you have, even at the very, very established, highly trafficked farmers markets are making a significant pro profit from a day at the market. And at the same time, the workers there probably aren't getting healthcare, probably aren't getting overtime pay. And there's just a lot of hidden costs with farmers markets that people don't see. While it's often an easy way for folks to think that they're supporting a better food system, but it's really, you know, surface level. That's why I speak a lot in the book about how CSAs, community supported agriculture shares and food hubs um, are far better ways to make your dollar heard and to take a more active role in your food system. And what about fast food McDonald's? Of course, you wrote about some man called McBeast, of course, Mr. Beast, uh, uh, what, um, what, what is the role of, of, of fast food, of Kentucky Fried Chicken, of McDonald's, of Burger King in, in the crisis of big meat that you write in the book? I mean, are they uh, massively morally and economically responsible for some of the worst aspects of, of the stuff you write about? Absolutely. Fast food and the rise of fast food over the past five decades has driven this need for efficiency and different additives that are very harmful to be put into products to make them quicker to out and cook. Um, you know, plasticizers are an uh, ingredient that I write about. It's an emerging issue that is so much worse than PFAS and people really have no idea that that exists in so much of the fast food food that is served out there. And I think it's important to share that because fast food is primarily advertising to vulnerable communities. And there's deep histories of structural problems, health problems. And it's just really a shame because it doesn't have to be that bad. And it doesn't have to be that unhealthy. Are there fast food companies that are more responsible they all claim to be of course but um are there some that are better than others are there any models when it comes to fast food a lot of them have added in some of the plant-based burger options in an attempt to make their menu seem healthier and more sustainable and i'm actually the forbes journalist who's spent time with most of the fast food folks in the world so in one of the few interviews with lindsey snyder of in and out for example and yeah. you know, in and out. Is, they, they have a better reputation, but they're more expensive as well. It's still a few dollars for a huge burger. I mean, their prices have barely changed since they opened up in, you know, five decades ago. But it is more expensive than McDonald's. Sure, I hear that point. You know, there is a lot of different emerging chains as well. You know, 
veggie grill is one that serves a lot of whole foods, not just some of the venture back brands. Um, but it depends, you know, they're really, there's new chains doing grass fed, uh, new chains that are trying to have, you know, clear antibiotic free sourcing. But really, if you're buying meat in a restaurant or a cafeteria or a food service setting, it almost all of the time is coming from an industrial setting with confinement and pollution. And so the health consequences are particularly troubling. Uh, I know you write about it in the book, especially for those of us who have children. What's your advice on kids and meat? I'm no doctor, but I think the less process, the less out of the clearer we can get to where food comes from better. I write a lot in the book about phytonutrients and how it's this really important type of nutrient that is really just not present in industrial meat. And it only comes from animals that are able to eat on an open range. If you're feeding yourself or anyone in your family meat, I know many billionaires and many other folks who, when they have the option of figuring out what they want to eat, they will only eat meat from the open range and they won't touch it otherwise. And so I think there's great beans, there's great tubers and potatoes and mushrooms. I grow mushrooms in my apartment too, but place for meat in the future, it just has to be really limited and it really depends on the source of where it's coming from. Finally, you had a, an interesting piece in the Los Angeles Times um, last week, uh, an op-ed, uh, free food for all. Uh, and, and, and you argue absolutely in this age of abundance in America, where we stuff ourselves on Thanksgiving, it should be a human right. Some people might say, yeah, well, dream on. How do we get to uh, a world of free food, Chloe? There are some ways that this can work within a market-driven system. Nothing would have to change in our food system for our government to spend a little money simply on creating an actual food department that can be a response in crisis, especially as climate crises will compounding and getting so much worse. The emergency response piece to me is very exciting. And, you know, there's a $400 billion farm bill coming up in the U.S., so much of that, billions and billions of dollars are currently spent and given, you know, as subsidies and to in crop insurance and different policies to farmers that are not farming with the incentives of the environment. You know, there are clear ways that that can change, but I think there's also a question of why can't some of the funding that's been going to supporting polluting farming for so long switch and simply be redirected other places. There's a lot of different interests around this farm bill. Obviously a lot of different annual subsidies that are given around too. Um, but it really, it, it could be as big and exciting and dreaming as you think, or it could be very, very localized and it could be as simple as a few warehouses that have you know crisis distribution ability. Well, finally, a lot of people are gonna be watching this. They need to pick up your new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. And they're going to be thinking to themselves, they're busy, but they, but they kind of agree with what you're saying, but they don't have a lot of time and they're not insiders. What would be one way that ordinary people, Chloe, who for one reason or other do eat meat and don't want to give it up, what, 
what's the first step? Uh, we probably, for better or worse, are not going to get to free food for all in the next generation or two. Uh, but what can people do today and tomorrow about addressing this in terms Support. of their own consumption in particular? Absolutely. Support antibiotic resistance that's actually validated or even... On what does that side. mean? I, I mean, people are going to say, well, that sounds There are good. some labels that are validated. There are new certifications out there that are going beyond just Whole Foods saying it's antibiotic-free because, again, Whole Foods isn't actually doing any validation. So, again, the threat of antibiotic resistance is such a problem alone that simply supporting antibiotic-resistant resistant meat or, you know, antibiotic-free meat would be huge. Pasture-raised would be another example or only trying to source grass-fed. The last thing I would say is otherwise joining a local CSA or buying your meat through. What is a CSA? A, CSA. a community supported agriculture share. Most neighborhoods have them and it's simply a membership based organization. It's run by its members. There's one farm that you prepay ahead of the season and you get a share of whatever they make for their season based on how many people are in the share. And usually there's organizations like a food hub that then will work with um, a, a share and then you can get additional food like meat and then you get the distribution all at the same time and the farmer is not really having to pay for distribution or the logistics like you would at a farmer's market.